am your father. This is, this is a Brandon Colby Jacobs from Facebook exclusive. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. Touche, my nigga. Touche. Yo, what it do, what it is, man. It's your boy, Brandon Kobe Jacobson. You are listening to the Established 1984 podcast, man. This is probably one of the biggest episodes that I'm probably ever going to do, uh, mainly because this is somebody who... I mean, for those of us who are who have been in the music industry in any facet or another, we definitely already know who this woman is. She is a huge influencer. She has been instrumental in some of the greatest deals in the history of hip hop. Uh, she has written a book, uh, The Knowledge to Succeed, How to Get a Record Deal. She has interacted with a variety of her characters, not just in the Southeast because she lives in, uh, lives in the Southeast now, but up in the Northeast, she's worked with just about anybody that you can think of in one capacity or another. She is definitely the quintessential example of what this podcast wanted to, to have as a representation. Those people who are influencers she is exactly that ladies and gentlemen i have the biggest podcast episode i've ever had because i have wendy day on the line miss day how are you i'm wonderful wow what an awesome introduction can i just record that and play it whenever i'm feeling like insecure <laughs> i will i will totally send this whole podcast your way it'll be available Yay. on soundcloud and everywhere else so I oh definitely, my gosh it was beautiful thank you i am totally looking forward to this in ways that you don't really understand because for people like me like we wanted to be you like I like I've, I've said on my previous podcast, obviously, I'm, I'm originally from Jacksonville, Florida. So when you talk about Jacksonville, Florida, Duval County, first person you think about is Bigger Rankin and Bigger Rankins was one of my my biggest influences. He and I have bumped heads and all that kind of stuff over the years. But even even in the midst of all of that, you know, when I was 12, 13 years old and my sister was dating a DJ that was in his camp. I mean, I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, yo, I want to be like him. So to yeah. get an opportunity to sit down with an influencer like yourself, it, it just it it makes me feel like that 12 year old again. I said that on Facebook. Oh, I was thank like, you yo, so like, much. This is this is this is major. So I'm I'm really excited. Thank you. What a huge <laughs> compliment. I got to tell you, I really love Bigger Rankin, but I love him for his honesty, which most people can't stand. Yes. Like it's so rare to find somebody in the music business that will tell you the truth, like give it to you straight. Right. And he does. And I love that about him. <laughs> and you know, the, the clients that I deal with are mostly people that are investing large sums of money into an artist. Mm -hmm. And if there's something wrong with the music, like we want to know, because right. we could lose $100,000 working a song that's not worthy. Exactly. And the great thing about, about Bigga is he will tell you with the quickness. <laughs> he, he definitely will. This is probably oh why, my gosh. why he, and my, uh, he and my good friend Shout Out probably bumped heads over the years because he was kind of, Shout Out was raised up by him. But we'll, we'll get to all of that stuff a little bit later. What I want to do first, Miss Day, is now for the people who will be excited for this episode, they're most likely going to know at least to some degree something about you, or at least they should if they're really in the music industry. That being said, well, I don't want to just... Well, that surprises me a little bit because, like, I'm, I don't do a lot of interviews, you... so it's, it's not easy to, it's not easy to find out info about me. It's easy to see me speak because mm -hmm. I speak a lot on panels. Right. But, um... 
Yeah, there's not a whole lot of interviews with me out there. Like I, I've never I did, hired. I dug in, and I, I guess maybe I was it was just a byproduct of me doing my research. But I yeah, found a, I found a healthy amount <laughs> about you. I mean, a lot of it was similar, but and it was a byproduct of probably interviews that were probably similar. I think maybe probably from the book tour and stuff like that, where you were sitting down and people kind of dug in. Maybe it was just a byproduct of that. But I found a good little bit of information. I'm so glad. Okay, good. good. <laughs> now, I don't want to just dig boring. into the same conversations I'm sure you've been having since you closed some of your first major deals in the mid and late 90s. Let's start from the beginning. Where are you from and, and what was life like for you growing up? Um, I'm from Philly. Okay. I'm from a suburb of Philadelphia. Um, it was a wealthy Jewish suburb of Philadelphia, <laughs> which is really funny because my family was not wealthy or Jewish. Right. Okay. And the reason I'm telling you this is because it it made me comfortable at an early age with being different, with being the outsider. Okay. So it, it put me in a position where I was very comfortable with being someone who didn't look like other people who wasn't exactly in the same um tribe as other people right. it made me comfortable being an outsider and that's one of the things in the music business that you know allowed me to to grow and develop my career as a white woman in a predominantly black male space 100 you know yeah absolutely so you grew up in in philly uh and you grew up in an area before the formation of hip-hop in any facet as we know it today from a musical perspective what were you listening to growing up and how did that help um, shape when you? i was yeah when i was a kid i was listening to rock and roll so i was listening okay. to led zeppelin acdc <laughs> that's, that's like completely um, different from what from yeah right. exactly van halen like you know classic rock mm -hmm. and then in 1980, I went to art school and um, I was in downtown Philadelphia and University of Pennsylvania had like a fall fling, for lack of a better term. Right. And what they used to do because their their population on the campus was so diverse, they um, brought in artists from all different genres. So I went to a concert that had. Um, the E Street Band, who backed up um, Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, Bruce Springsteen. The Psychedelic e Furs yeah. performed. The Psychedelic Furs were like new age rock wow. at the time. Um, and Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Really? So, so they were all yeah. together? Yes. And there were other people in the bill I just can't remember because it's, you know, yeah, right. it's 1980, like right. it was a million years ago. <laughs> so I, I rode my dinosaur to the concert and I was so amazed. <laughs> By, I was so amazed by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Like, I loved the energy. I loved the synchronized performance. Mm -hmm. You know, they all kind of moved um, together right, as because one. It, it was still very much so like R&B and, and like the structure of like performance from R&B music of the 70s and 80s and yes. kind of Jackson 5 choreography and stuff. Yeah, yes, just... yes. Very Jackson 5-ish, yes. Okay. And I loved the energy and the passion. And that was it for me. That was the fall of 1980. So I was like, man, this is awesome. And from there, I started hanging out at the record stores in Philadelphia. I learned that if I would go to 
um, this one store, and I wish I could remember the name. It's just been so long, I can't. It was called right. something like Gatown Music or something like that. Right. There was one DJ who used to DJ in the store, and if I would go in on Tuesday morning, he would sell me a cassette from New York from that weekend. And I don't know whether it was him going up there or whether a friend was hooking him up or somebody was mailing them to him. And then from that, I would listen to the, that cassette. And it was the um, the, uh, the underground radio station in New York. Mm-hmm. From that, I would learn which music I liked, and then I would buy the vinyl okay. of you know whatever the singles were that I liked. Right. And then as he and I developed a relationship, I he was able to like pull what he knew I would like and hold it aside. So I sort of became almost like a little trendsetter in Philly, just loving the music and not doing anything with it, but just really loving it. Right. And um, right about that time, maybe maybe six months after that or so, or nine months after that or so, one of the local Philadelphia radio stations started going into a club um, in West Philadelphia where rap was being played. So I could sit in my dormitory room and listen to the music from the club. Um, I never actually went to the club because I was trying to be a student, and I knew that if I would go out and party every night, it would just screw me. Right. So I listened, you know, in the comfort of my dorm room, and really, really loved the music. Um, after I graduated from college, I went into corporate America. I made a shit ton of money. Can I curse? No, no, you're good. Go ahead. Okay, <laughs> I good. shoot them off too. Good. Um, I made a shit ton of money, and my focus was very much on money. Because remember, I came from a very poor background, but I lived in a wealthy neighborhood. So I knew what wealth was, and I wanted me some. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Now, yep. you're an adult living in the infancy of the, the hip-hop of the 80s, as we've been talking about. Um, yes. If uh, kind of what were you listening to over this period of time? Obviously, we talked about Grandmaster Flash and things like that. But what Nucleus, was the genre like in its beginnings? Um, it was it was party rap. Um, mm-hmm. I was listening to Nucleus, like Jam One Revenge. Um, it was a lot of back and forth battle raps. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, you'd hear one artist make a song and then like a female artist would make a response song to that. And then another artist would make a response song to her. Um, What else was going on? Some battles, battles were big. Um, This is the same time as KRS one is doing his thing. A lot of stuff is happening in New York. Um, A little bit earlier than KRS one. This was more like busy B grandmaster has. This was a little bit before Chris. Um, and then I went to New York in 87. Okay. I went to New York with one of my girlfriends for the weekend, and I heard Mr. Magic and Marley Marl's radio show. Oh, wow. And I said, oh, my God, I have to be here. Like, their radio show was so cutting edge. It was all music that I hadn't heard yet. Right. And, you know, and some of the stuff that I liked, but mostly new stuff. And I'm like, oh. So I went home that Monday. I quit my job. I terminated my lease. I wow. put everything I owned into a, a U-Haul truck, and within a week, I was living in Manhattan. That's crazy. And I had no job. I had no money. I mean, I had money because I was I had a good job, mm-hmm. but you know, I was kind of spending the money as quickly as I was making it back then. Yeah, as but we most I, do I, when we're young like that. As we do, yes, as as we sometimes do. 
And um, I moved to New York. I got a job, and it was it was mecca for me for hip hop. I was going to clubs. I was going to concerts. I was not in the industry whatsoever, mm-hmm. but I just really loved the music, you know. And I would bump into people that you know. I'd start to recognize people that worked in the music industry. Again, I wasn't in the industry at all. Mm-hmm. Had no interest in it. You know, I, I was doing very well at that point in time. I was working um, in the advertising sales industry and I was making, you know, like I said, a shit ton of money. So I was happy. Right. Um, I moved up to Montreal for three years Wow. Really? and I ran a liquor company and that was valuable for me because it was a startup and it was basically me doing all of the research and all of the work, but somebody else was putting up the money and I was able to turn it into a successful company that was then bought out by Seagram's mm-hmm. and the guy made a lot of money and he was happy. And what it taught me, it was sort of like training wheel, wheels for me, if right. you will. It taught me that, oh, wow, I can do this. Right. Touch I don't it. need somebody else like to give me a paycheck, like with money, I can do this. Right. So I came back to New York. Um, it's now 91. I came back to New York and for the first time in my life, I didn't have to work. Um, I probably should have because it wasn't that much money, but when you're, you know, 29 years old, a half a million dollars is all the money in the world. Oh yeah. That's still a whole lot of money, Wendy. I know (laughs) it is. Yeah. (laughs) Well, in in today's world, it's not quite as much as you think you could probably live for, you know, a year or two, but you'd really want to like keep working. (laughs) You can't like retire at 25 half a million dollars right you know so um i was 30 years old and i said you know i i don't want to work in corporate america anymore i want to build a company um making a lot of money did not make me happy Mm -hmm. i didn't really see the value in just being wealthy for the sake of being wealthy so i wanted to do something to help people and i wanted to start a not-for-profit and I wanted to fund it with my own money. And then I always knew that I'd be able to just start another company on the side to keep me afloat financially. Right. And my thinking was, worst case scenario, you know, I'm 30 years old. If this tanks, then so be it. I'll just go get another job. Like, no big deal. So that was kind of where my mindset was at, my mind state. So, um I started Rap Coalition, Mm -hmm. and I never looked back. Like, there was a need for it immediately. It was challenging for me to get into the industry, you know, to get artists to trust me. Mm -hmm. But after time, people realized, okay, she's she's real. She's legit. She's the real thing. And word spread, and I built my following – pretty strongly that's a that it's so crazy when, when i think when i hear you talk about it in that way and even as i was reading that, that that seemed to fall in line with the way other people had asked the question and you had answered it previously that's a very unique path to go down like like how does your mind just 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 develop that co- that sort of concept to create rap coalition because this is a path that doesn't exist in March of 1992. This isn't or today, right? Or, or even today. today. I mean, me. you're, yeah. you're the one yeah. who created the path for the rest of us to follow down. So, like, how did you conceive this in your mind, or, or was it literally just, you know, like how most of us are? We just kind of wake up and we just start doing stuff, and before we know it, we've created a legacy. Is that what it was, or did um, you really I have think, a sense of I it then? It- I I did not have a sense of it. It was more a reaction to 
Um, remember I told you I was going to the clubs and I would sort of see the same people, although I didn't work in the music industry. Right, right. Um, I would also devour anything about rap. So I would go to the newsstand the day the Source magazine was going to drop and I would, you know, I'd be telling the guy, take the rapper off, take the rapper off, you know, so I could get the copy. Um, and I was just like a complete fanatic. And I was hearing these stories and I was reading stuff about how rappers weren't really making the kind of money that they should. Especially compared you know, to rock artists, 100%. Yes, or, or any other artists, really. And it frustrated me because, like, this is my favorite music. I'm like, it was more like a reaction of, like, how dare they take advantage of these wonderful, wonderful artists that I think are, like, godlike, right. you know? And I decided that if nobody was going to do anything about it, that I would. And it was also a reaction from I took a class at the new school that was taught by Sid Bernstein and um, Bert Padel. Bert is a, um, a business manager. Mm -hmm. He's like a, the money guy for a lot of artists. Right. And he was telling stories in the class about, you know, how little artists made in the trickle down. You know, they were making millions of dollars, but the labels were keeping, you know, 82 percent of the money or 88 percent, excuse me, 88 percent of the money after the artist paid back everything that was spent. But they were paying everything back out of their little 12 percent. Wow. And I'm like, I'm like, wait a minute. I have a degree in African-American studies, and that is sharecropping. <laughs> like, the similarities were just too close for me. Right. And I'm like, you know what? I have the chance to do something about this. I've, I've got money. I'm looking for something to do. I, I, knew that, um, I knew that I wanted to help people. I knew I wanted to help people of color. And that was just glaringly obvious to me. It wasn't like I sat back and said, gee, where do I fit in? I saw a need and I filled it. Right. And now, I got to ask you because th there's something interesting and it's funny you brought that up because I did see that in my research too, that you had a master's in African-American studies. What made you want to pursue, you know, that, that sort of degree? Obviously most people are going to go, D. why does this white woman want to, want to do this? D. Chuck D. Chuck D. <laughs> Chuck D. Chuck D, which led me to Malcolm X, which led me, um, and I'm sure, you know, most of your listeners have, read the autobiography of Malcolm X. Right. In that book, he mentions books that he read while he was incarcerated. Mm -hmm. I think there's seven of them. It might be 11, but there's somewhere around seven books. And although I couldn't find all of them, I went and read the ones that I could find. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I lived in New York at the time, so I could go to the Schomburg Center and have access to like any book on, you know, black history, black studies. And what's amazing is um, I studied under Malefi Asante. So I studied from an Afrocentric point of view, not just black studies, mm -hmm. but like Afrocentric black studies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, I came up understanding the struggle completely, you know, and, and, and I think as a white person, that's so rare. Like, I don't know a lot of white folk that understand what African-Americans have really been through. Right. And I think that's one of the problems with, you know, this country is, and why racism is so ingrained is because we're not taught as, as young white people, like what black folk have endured. Right. 
yet black folk are taught on a white, um, you know, they're, they're taught from white books and white history. It, it, it's like we don't embrace the black experience as white people. And not to, you know, I'm not trying to get off on a tangent with no, this. No, that's fine. But it's something that I always thought was kind of wrong. So the um, program that I studied kind of fit with my own internal beliefs. And it was wonderful. Like, I recommend it for, for everyone and anyone. The problem with having a master's degree in AFAM studies as a white person is, or any person, is it qualifies you to either teach or write. Right. And I didn't really want to do either of those things, which is kind of funny because today I teach and I write, right? right? I teach rappers and, and I write articles for rappers. Mm-hmm. But back then, I knew that, and coming back to my to my story, having met Burt Padell and hearing all of these atrocities that were being, you know, um, performed on rap artists and R&B, not just rap. And, and, right. and later I learned that it's not just, it's not just black artists. It's also oh, rock yeah. it's country. It's all artists. All right. artists are completely like just beaten down. It's crazy. They're the last to get paid. Yep. hundred percent. But putting my little soapbox away, um, I realized <laughs> back then that I could make a difference and I wanted to make a difference. And and I just started doing it. And the thing about what I do is there's really no money in it. There's no money in pulling somebody out of a bad deal. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why there aren't more organizations doing what I do, because there's so many people in the music industry that are here to make money. Right. 100%. That being said, for, for listeners that don't know, uh, can you talk about the services that the Rap Coalition provides and has provided? Yes. Yes. Um, what Rap Coalition does is when somebody is in an unfair contract with a legitimate record label, and I have to preface that and say legitimate, because if you pop up, Brandon, and you say I'm starting, um, you know, B Records, right. and you go and you sign an artist, if that artist comes to me and says, you know, um, I want to get off of B Records, I actually have to be able to make a phone call to you. I actually have to, you know what I mean? Like you and I have to have some sort of negotiation and a lot of smaller, um, not to imply that you'd ever start a bullshit label, but some (laughs) of the smaller bullshit labels aren't really labels. They're just some guy with a recording contract that, you know, signs somebody into a deal and does absolutely nothing. But having said that, the artists that are like signed to Atlantic or Universal or Sony or Def Jam or even a a larger production company, when they're in a situation where they're not making money and they're not happy and their career has stalled, they call me and then I step in and I try to negotiate them out of their deal. Um, If I'm not able to do it, then we have an attorney step in and do it. I, I have not yet not been successful, but I also don't brag about that because I don't want the labels to see me as a threat. Right, right. Roundabout, um, and I'm sure you're going to ask me this, so I'm just going to cut right to it. <laughs> <laughs> Roundabout 1995, I was you know three or four years years into this, and I realized that just pulling people out of bad deals wasn't great. Right. You know, I, I had pulled these guys off of this label in New York, um, a little dance label that wanted to dabble in rap and they just couldn't make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember breaking this kid's contract and he had a party 
and it was um, it was somewhere up in the Bronx. And I went to the party, and everybody was celebrating except me. You know, I was standing there looking around the room, and I'm like, okay, this is great, but tomorrow after this party's over, like, what's this kid going to do? He doesn't have a record deal. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have a way to put out music, and that's his love. And I realized that it was a problem. As As happy as I was that I could help him, I realized that it wasn't enough. And from that day forward, he ended up becoming an EMS worker, by the way. And oh, from okay. that day forward, um, I decided that I wanted to help get artists into good deals. Since I had seen so many bad deals, I kind of knew what it took. And I pulled this group off of um, Island, 4th and Broadway, a group called the Chameleons. And I'm so friends with them today, ironically. Mm-hmm. And um, one of them's cousin was running a label for a guy out of California, out of Richmond called Master P. Mm -hmm. And he called me and said, Hey, look, we're, you know, we've sold 300 and some odd thousand CDs. Master P is the hottest guy out here. Right. Um, We need a record deal. We need some sort of distribution. Priority is um, talking to us, but the person who's negotiating for us manages an artist that's already on priority. And we're just a little bit concerned that 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 person isn't going to have our complete best interests at heart. Exactly. And, and the happy story is that he did, it was EA ski and he Mm -hmm. did, he did a beautiful job, but they didn't know that and they were worried. So they called me. So my first deal that I got to work on, and, you know, it wasn't my deal. I worked with, like, eight other people, but I got to – the first deal that I got to be a part of was Master P's No Limit deal. And that was kind of an amazing precedent-setting deal, you know, to be part of. I was proud to be part of that. And then from there I went on to work with um, Twista and Do or Die Mm -hmm. out of Chicago, then Eminem out of Detroit. Cash money out of New Orleans, you know, blah, 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 name drop, name drop, name drop. But <laughs> I, I learned that if I could build these companies strong independently, like what Master P had done on the West Coast, what Too Short had done on the West Coast, what um, E40 had done on the West Coast, I realized that I could get them like ownership deals, like, you know, where. Not only would they have ownership, but that they would get the lion's share of the money. And I realized that that was what I wanted to do in the music industry. And I was able to make a living doing that after, you know, I didn't get paid for like the first three or four deals that I did. Mm -hmm. But after that, I was able to get paid to do what it is that I do. I mean, I still pull people out of deals, bad deals for free, Mm -hmm. but it's nice to be paid to help somebody get into a multi-million dollar deal. Right. Now, I, I, I knew that you were involved in the, in the No Limit deal, and I remember reading that there wasn't any pay that came out of that. From the cash money deal, two things that I want to ask you. Number one, well, because I've also heard you many times say that, that you're giving more credit than sometimes you, you deserve as it relates to these, because we, you know, a lot of times when we hear about these deals, we hear your name ring bells and we say, OK, she is solely responsible for for putting these deals together and making cash money what they were today or making no limit what they were today. For those of us who obviously weren't there, don't know how many people were involved. Can you talk about a deal like the cash money deal? your involvement in, in the, the magnitude of a deal like that? Because 
because, I mean, coming up, when I came up, people always referred to it as the 80-20 deal. I've read some other places where they say that it's actually 85%. Can you kind of walk through what those deals look like and why they were so unprecedented for those people who may not know? Absolutely. Um, and it was an 80-20 deal. It wasn't 85 It was 80-20. Okay. Um, with the cash money deal, um, I played a bigger role than I did in the Master P deal, mm-hmm. only because so many people really believe in money the way that I did. I heard the music. I knew what it was. Mm-hmm. And when you hear me say that I'm not solely responsible for that deal, what I'm saying is they built that company. They put out 31 CDs over a six-year period right. before I found them. Um, and then when they came to me, I brought them to my attorney, Andy Tabble, who was a little bit too busy at the time. So his partner, Peter, Peter Thea, worked with me on that deal for nine months. Mm-hmm. And between the two of us, you know, we shopped them everywhere. And in the very beginning, it was very difficult to get a label interested because Cash Money had only sold, you know, five or 10,000 CDs on each release. Mm-hmm. And because I had been putting out music for three years at that point in time, I knew exactly what the problem was. They were working a record for about six weeks and then moving on to the next one. Right. And they were only working it in. Louisiana and a little bit in the Houston area. So they weren't spreading it. It was spreading naturally the music, but they weren't spreading it like, um, like the way they should have been. So what I did was I put together a marketing plan and started to help them spread the music. And the first project that I put out with them, um, actually big timers actually, um, actually did really well and sold 75,000 CDs. I put them. Now, remember I had at that point in time, I had been working already with Eminem um, in Detroit and, and uh, Twista and do or die in Chicago. So I had really strong relationships Mm -hmm. and Peter Thea was the attorney for three, six mafia. Mm -hmm. So we set up a tour where cash money would open for three, six mafia. And we, we circled them all through the mid South and up into the Midwest. So it made selling, um, CDs, which, you know, that's what we sold back then. Right. It made selling CDs so much easier. And then once we were able to show that we sold 75,000 within a couple of weeks, um, the offers really started to pour in. Right. Now, did did Universal really believe in in cash money initially? Because yes. I've heard different initially, things. Initially, no. Okay. No, initially, no. I remember when we first sent the proposal, um, Peter had a relationship with um, Mel LeWinter, who was the president at the time. Doug Morris was the CEO. Mm-hmm. And Mel called Peter and ripped him a new asshole about our <laughs> proposal. He's like, how dare you ask for this kind of money? And we weren't asking for a lot of money. It's just that the guys had only had only sold between five and 10,000 on these 31 releases, except one BG's chopper city in the ghetto had sold about 25,000 at mm-hmm. that point in time. Right. So he was looking at our numbers and he's like, where do you get off pitching, you know, an 80, 20 split for this? Like these guys obviously don't know what they're doing. And that was right when, um, we decided that we were going to boost, the sales and the target market. And then of course, um, 
they put um, inside of Universal, they put Dino Duvalier on it, although Dino claims that he knew about them before. I don't know. I wasn't in his head, so I don't know. Right. I can only tell you what my recollection was. But they put Dino on you know, tracking them and looking at them. And he's like, wow, I really want to sign them. So they were really, really excited about cash money, but not in the very beginning. In the beginning, we got yelled at. That's so crazy. Cause I mean, even still looking back on it now, history, history being what it is, it's just amazing that this 80, 20 deal was even created because again, it's unprecedented. It's something that never happened before and really hasn't happened since. I just, I'm astonished by the fact that Universal was willing to even do that sort of I was deal too. with them. I was too. <laughs> you know, after after the deal was done, you know, I went to Mel LeWinter and I'm like, why, why did you do this deal? It doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And he sat me down and he explained how labels look at things. And he's like, Wendy, you know, we are – we are a company that thrives by the stock exchange. So our stock has to always be up. And music is a very small component of what this company does. So for us, having product in the marketplace and movement has more value than um, sales or income. And he explained to me what market share was because I hadn't known really what it was or why Universal was bigger than Sony and bigger than Warner Brothers. I Please had no elaborate. Clue. Please elaborate because for people who don't know, even well, markets absolutely market share is the percentage of ownership of an industry that a company has. Mm-hmm. And I can't quite remember exactly what the market share is today. I look at it every December, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but it's roughly it's roughly around like a third, a third, and a third between the three majors. Mm-hmm. Um, Universal has has been the biggest up until now, mm-hmm. um, followed by Sony and then Warner Brothers in that order. And it just it's the percentage of ownership that a company has of all of the music that's in the marketplace, and that matters far more to them actually than day-to-day sales. They don't care about one artist selling well or not selling well. They care about their market share and all of the products doing well within a given market share. Right. So that could be old stuff. That could be having the Jacksons in your catalog and knowing that that's going to sell throughout the year. And then also having Beyonce. It could be a, it can be a variety of things. So they don't necessarily care who it is or what it is or how old it is. Gotcha. Exactly. And it's even a little bigger than what you're thinking because Universal's an entertainment company. Mm -hmm. They own Universal Studios in Florida. They own a lot of of amusement parks around the country. So their share of market is not just music. It's like a step above that. It's entertainment. Mm -hmm. And their concern is... Their their stock price increasing because their market share increases, okay. and cash money by putting so much product into the marketplace, um, they that made a you know that made a difference for them. Okay. That's what they cared about. That's crazy. Now, like I like I was saying to you before we got started, I know you probably don't remember, but I got my first chance to meet you when I was 22 years old back in 2006 at the SEAs in Tunica, Mississippi while I was on the management team for an artist named Shoutout from Jacksonville. Just getting a chance to listen to you on the panel was so insightful, but 
it was clear that you cared about the welfare of artists and maintaining a future for independent and regional artists to thrive. Who are some of the independent and regional artists over the last, we'll say, 10 to 12 years that you've enjoyed working with and assisting in, and why? Um, I enjoy working with all artists from the ones that are the easiest to work with to the ones that are most difficult. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because my I'm driven by <clears throat> wanting to see artists succeed. For me, I don't care about the quality of the music in terms of income or deals for an artist. And what I mean by that is, you know, obviously I listen to what I think is great rap, mm -hmm. but if somebody were to come to me that wasn't quite as talented, let you know, let me use master P as an example, because mm -hmm. when he first came out, my friends who were all rap purists out of New York were right. like, Oh my God, what you're destroying. <laughs> yeah. Like you're destroying, you're destroying hip hop. Like, what are you doing? Oh my God. You know? And for me, I tend to work what the fans want to hear. So, for example, if there's an artist <clears throat> who has only sold two units of their song mm -hmm. and there's another artist that has sold 100,000, I don't look at it like which one do I like better. I look at it like which one do the fans like better. And obviously the, the person who has 100,000 streams or sales or whatever is the artist that the fans prefer. Mm -hmm. So my whole career has been spent um, focusing on artists that have the budget necessary to succeed and who have good music, but music that the fans think is good, not that I personally think is good. Right, and that, that's the thing about, and just just as a as a side note, as far as artists like like uh, Master P or or even all of the artists that came out of Cash Money at that period of time, the South was building in a way that it, that it didn't exist before. I mean, and I'm from the South, like I'm from Jacksonville, Florida, Duval County. We we were we were relishing that that sort of music making its way to the forefront in, in ways that it hadn't done before because that was going on in our neighborhoods and things like that like that had been going exactly. on block parties in our areas for you know since i was since i was born like that was that exactly. had just been going on that my sister used to take me to block parties where you would see guys like trick daddy you would see guys that look just like master p looked like me juvenile i i, I don't want to say i dress like juvenile but i guess like when i was like 14, 15 years old, I was dressing like juvenile, wearing Jabot jeans and had a grill in my mouth and the gold rim glasses. Exactly. Like, like so exactly. that resonated with us. So I can totally see why, you know, some some people wanted to hear that. And I I appreciate you for, you know, taking an interest in those sort of artists because they resonated with, with people like me from where I'm from. So exactly. And and you know, as a New Yorker, uh, you know, like I said, I moved to New York in the late eighties and I stayed there until the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And for me, I never understood why New York, which was only a few million people, was calling the shots for the rest of the country. Like, it really pissed me off. They controlled media. They controlled music. Mm -hmm. They controlled entertainment. You know, of course, L.A. LA controlled the film industry. Mm -hmm. But other than that, like, everything was based in New York at that time. And if, if you notice, like, if you look at my my resume, if you will, there are not really any New York artists on there. I did a lot for New York artists. I, I 
supported a lot of New York artists. I did um, monthly panel discussions in New York for artists. But most of the artists that I brought into the industry were from the South and the Midwest. And that was because I felt like they weren't getting a fair shot. I would go to Chicago and I would hear um, the DJs play Mob Deep. I'd hear them play NWA, but then I'd also hear them play Psychodrama, which is a local Chicago group. And I'm like, wow, this is really cool. If you go to a club in New York, you only hear New York artists. I remember when um, like the West Coast artists started to break through, like Ice-T and NWA. Mm -hmm. But I remember how hard it was for them to break through. And people would leave the dance floor when Fuck the Police came on because it was like, (laughs) oh, that's that L.A. shit. That's that West Coast shit. (laughs) You know, and to me it was like, are you serious? Right. I remember when Funkmaster Flex broke Doodoo Brown. (laughs) And I, I was in the club and he was playing Doo Doo Brown and people were dancing to it. And I happened to be in the DJ booth with um, DJ Cap, um, mm-hmm. rest in peace. And I said to Cap, who is this? And he's like, man, this is that hot shit from Miami. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And then all of a sudden I heard it on the radio like a couple weeks later. Flex was playing it. And I'm like, this is really cool. Like it was the first time that somebody played, you know, uh, a Miami bass type record in New York. And, you know, my friend was the the producer of the show. And he's like, man, the, 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 the phones lit up. People were complaining <laughs> about that. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like that song's so hot, ever. so danceable, like the energy. And it still and resonates that, today, all these years later. <laughs> yes. Yes. But that attitude in New York, like, like, it's the center of the universe. Like that really used to drive me crazy. And that was really the reason I finally left because Southern music was getting bigger and bigger, like since the, the, the mid nineties. And my purest friends were like, Oh, it's trash. It's trash. It's garbage. And I'm like, no, it's not. Listen to it. It's melodic. It's like, it's like a growth of what was created here in New York. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. And they're like, no, it's garbage. And this is horrible. And it was so funny to me. I'm like, no, it's not. So I moved, I moved to Memphis first. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to um, here to Atlanta. Um, but I left New York in 2001 mm-hmm. because I saw the growth was not only here in the South, but in, in, in New York, when I would speak on a panel, artists would say to me, how do I get a record deal? And that would make me cringe because it was like, it was like, okay, first of all, you don't have enough leverage to get a good record deal, which means you're just going to get fucked. So what's the point? Right. When I would speak in the South, they would say to me, Wendy, how can I sell more, more CDs? Mm -hmm. And that mentality was just so much better for where my mind was at. I couldn't move to the South fast enough. (laughs) And I've been here, like I said, I've been here, God, 17 years. The, the crazy thing that I think a lot of people don't understand, and I, I'm sure you can relate to this from a musical perspective and why I think Southern music has broken through and, and has continued to have the impact that it has is because it, it, it sort of, it took what hip hop was from the North and it incorporated a lot of what we are. A lot of what we are, uh, you know, has the semblance of jazz, but it also has a lot of the Caribbean influences as well. And that's the reason yes. why a lot of our music tends to be more kind of uh, more fast tempo, more dance based, things like that. That's the reason why Florida blew up the way that it blew up with 
with uh you know Piccolo and, and all the guys from down from down that way you know COA baby and all that kind of stuff it's the reason right. why those things kind of resonated the way that they did and why why southern music has been so influential over the last 15 years you know so. and and here's a blessing that the south had that they didn't realize was a blessing when the south tried so hard to get on and the new york labels were like no 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 it forced the artists to become independent mm -hmm. and to become self self um supportive mm -hmm. and that's something that the new york artists never had like in new york you didn't really have to sell units to get a deal you just had to know somebody that worked up in a record label and when that person brought you into the label for a meeting you would get a really shitty mediocre deal so you would get like maybe a hundred thousand dollar advance out of that you had to live on it for the next year while they you know put your record together before they put you out on tour mm -hmm. so you'll hear stories of guys like Evil D talking about how when he started Black Moon for the first year, he had to take the subway back and forth to the record label because he had no money. Right. And he was working at the record label just, you know, for, for lunch money or dinner money, you know? Mm -hmm. um, you'll hear stories about Biggie having to ride the train. You know, Q-Tip slept on his mom's sofa for the first three albums. Um, the guys in the South didn't really have to pay that kind of price because they weren't trying to get record deals. So they were doing shit on their own. They would sell enough units or create enough buzz that a label would come in to sign them. And if you're already selling $300,000 worth of CDs, every time you put one out, a record label can't come in and offer you a hundred thousand dollars. Right for a 12% deal. Right. You're going to be like, fuck off. <laughs> right. And <laughs> a know? lot of that was just as a side note for a lot of people who may be listening, there's a DVD that came out many years ago. I think it's called dirty States of America. Amazing DVD. Loved it. There were, there were tons of, uh, there were tons of artists. TJ Chapman was on there talking. Um, and it gives a lot of insight to what the South is, um, uh, and, and how the music industry has been structured down here. So, for, for exactly the, and shout out flex for for putting that together because he never got paid on it like that was a labor of love so you know good for him yep. good for him for doing that now uh one thing that i just want to kind of backtrack for a second to some relationships that you had previously um now obviously we we know now that there's been tons of conversation about no limit not paying artists cash money not paying <laughs> artists and obviously there's ongoing litigation with little wayne and baby despite the fact that baby had been known for not paying people did you ever think that that'd be something he'd do to Wayne? And if you were advising Wayne today, uh, what would you suggest he do regarding what he's owed? Um, I would suggest him doing exactly what he did, which is Sue. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's it's I, I think, you know, dealing with baby is its own special beast. It's not <laughs> it's not like dealing with the head of Sony or the head of Warner Brothers. It's it's just it's a really different dynamic. Um, if I could have pulled him aside when he was younger, I would have told him not to get so close to the label president, mm -hmm. um, because at some point that would bite him in the ass. Mm hmm. You know, it's 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 one thing to tell your label president that you're going to sue him. It's another thing to tell your surrogate father you're going to sue them. Right. So the dynamic between them was never 
professional. It was never businesslike. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think he's paying a, a huge price for that now because it's not just about Wayne wanting to be paid what he's owed. It's about him embarrassing his father in public, his surrogate father in public. Mm-hmm. It's about him um, emotionally distancing himself from a man who likes complete control. Mm-hmm. It, it it's it's so much more than what it should have been or what it needed to be mm-hmm. that it's just really hard for for anybody to give him advice because he's doing what he should have done and he should have done it years ago. He's 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 been not paid properly. Boy, I just grammatically screwed that up. <laughs> he's he's been kind of screwed his whole career. Right. And for him to you know, wake up 15 years later and say, hey, wait, I'm not being paid properly. It's sort of like, well, Duh. you let it go for this long. <laughs> yeah, you let it go for this long. Why is it now a problem? Like I could see where where baby who's completely wrong in the situation, I'm certainly not taking his side. Right. But I could see where he'd be like, well, why now? Like, where'd this come from? Right. It, it's just... And I could see where that would lead to the emotional you know, drama that ensued. Right. I, I just, I'm absolutely amazed by Wayne. I, I guess, you know, in my own little, very small way, got an opportunity to work with him doing some of the marketing stuff for the Carter two album as an intern. And it was just, it was totally cool working with him. He's such a creative mind. He was he like, you know, I've heard other people talk about some of the experiences that they've had in dealing with him. I know on conference calls when we were with Ken, Wayne was super nice to us. He was, you know, thanking us for, you know, the work that we did in our little small markets in our own little small way. So I, I've always admired him. I've always been uh, a huge fan of the Carter Two album. I think that that's when he was at his very best before I think a lot of his uh, substance abuse kind of overtook him. Um, you know, I think that that's when he was his most creative. That was that I always felt like that was kind of like the sweet spot for him as an artist where, you know, a lot of who he is now, some of that was there, but he still had kind of like, like an up North flow to him in a lot of ways too. So that was that sweet spot. And I, you know, I've just always respected Lil Wayne. So I, I just hate to see where he's at right now. I do too. And, you know, one of the problems with going to war with an artist is there's an expiration date on rap and it shouldn't be this way and it's slowly changing, but there's going to be a point where if he does gain his freedom and he starts putting out music, it's almost going to be too late Mm -hmm. and he's going to be a legacy act. Mm -hmm. And, and that's a little heartbreaking to me because Wayne always struck me and he was always my favorite. He struck me as somebody that was doing this, not just because he wanted to get paid, but because he really loved it. He seems like such a hard worker and so dedicated. And he's got, you know, so many different, um, projects in his head that he wants to get out. You know, he wants to, to be a rock star or a rap artist. You know, I'm surprised he hasn't put out like a poetry album. Like he's just so artistic that this must just be killing him. This must be really hard for him. Right. Now, one thing that I would, from a do-all perspective, um, I did a little bit of research because I know you have some relationships with some folks from what we like to call in Duval County, the crib. And I, I talked to Young Cash while I was doing some research on you. And he <laughs> made, made mention of how you, you wrote him while he was in prison. 
outside of that, he spoke glowingly about what you have meant to him personally. And he also said that you made it a point to reach out to other artists when they were locked down and show and show support. What is it about you that yeah. makes you be so thoughtful in a business where relationships are off, often boiled down to what a person can offer another person? Um. I would like to attribute that to my mom. I think she raised me well. I think that's the real answer. Mm -hmm. um, but the answer that I'm going to give you is that um, I have a very strong sense of empathy. Mm -hmm. And I know how hard it is for a star to be incarcerated. For somebody that's sort of moved around and been able to do anything that he or she has wanted to do um, financially, emotionally, sexually, materialistically, mm -hmm. and then to be confined to a cell and told when they're going to eat, when they're going to speak, what they're going to do all day. Um, I just can't imagine that. To me, that's probably the worst kind of hell. And I started embracing artists very early that were incarcerated. Um, I remember creating a letter writing campaign for Keith Murray when he was locked down mm -hmm. and for Capone from Capone and Noriega when right. Capone was locked down. And I had people sending me emails this is in the early days of emails. They were sending me emails and I was printing them out and mailing them into the prison so that the guys were getting letters from their fans mm -hmm. and it was such an easy thing for me to do right and i started doing that it was either it was either 97 or 98 i can't quite remember which but i remember it was new year's eve and i don't really like going out on new year's eve mm -hmm. um for me new year's eve is amateur night it's people that can't hold their liquor mm -hmm. getting way too drunk <laughs> and for some reason they're all like steering towards me trying to kill me right with their cars right so i just i never go out on on new year's eve and that year i started writing um inmates you know rappers that were incarcerated on new year's eve that's how i chose to spend my new year's eve and it grew from there mm -hmm. and then as as i grew um more wealth in the music industry i started sending books and then um, I kept up my letter writing campaigns. I started like a, a newsletter because at one point there were like 40 or 50 people that I knew that were incarcerated. And my list was like too long for me to write individual letters. So I'd write letters to the guys that I was closer to. Mm -hmm. But um, for most of the artists that I didn't have a relationship with, like the Kodak Blacks today mm -hmm. and, um, you know, guys like that, I would – write like a general letter talking about what was going on in the music industry, what I was doing, almost like a newsletter. And I would send it to them. I would send them books. Um, if there were articles that made sense, um, I sent it to them. Um, and, and I was doing this for guys like, you know, as famous as a Tupac or a Kevin Gates mm -hmm. down to guys that weren't famous, like Bumpy J out of Chicago, Young Cash, who hadn't quite, you know, um, been able to capitalize on his career yet. Mm -hmm. 
so I, I sort of became the queen of prisons. And it's really funny because, <laughs> you know, today I'm still I'm still that. And my list has grown from not just rappers, but I started getting letters from guys like Freeway Ricky Ross wow. and Meech. You know, I, I didn't meet Meech from BMF until he was incarcerated. Right. And I reached out to him because I noticed that everybody else was running away from him. Mm-hmm. So I ran towards him. You know, I, I just thought it was shitty that when he was out here spending millions of dollars on, you know, you know, partying in clubs and on billboards, BMF, we run the world. <laughs> yes, we rule the world. Like when he was out here, you know, sharing the wealth with everybody, he was loved and he was a god. But mm-hmm. as soon as he got locked down, like everybody abandoned him, even the rappers that he supported. A lot of people don't know that he was very, very close with BMF was very close with Fabulous. I mean, everybody knows about the about the young Jeezy relationship, but Fab was a part of all of that, too. So, yes, yes. Yes. So, um, and there were a lot of people, and I'm not going to embarrass anybody by calling them out because mm-hmm. I just said something like, you know, very true but very shitty. Yeah. So I don't want to attach any names to that. They right. know who they are, right. and I've, I've, you know, I've hit them, <laughs> I've hit them privately. Um, <laughs> but there are people that weren't part of BMF that stepped up. Um, mm-hmm. Myself, Akon. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there, there's just people that really. Um, uh, 50 cent. There's mm-hmm. people that have stepped up and befriended Meech and his brother mm-hmm. um, while they're while they're incarcerated that are making a difference in their lives, you know, sending them books. And for me, you know, I, I love I love the accolades I get for the cash money deal because I'm very proud of it. But I'm more proud of Young Buck coming out of prison and saying to, I think it was Vibe magazine, saying, you know, thank God for Wendy Day. She really kept my head straight while I was incarcerated. Right. And that meant more to me than probably any, any, anything anybody's ever done for me. Right. Now, I, I got to ask you, I mean, again, what, what, how, did, how in the world did you, did you build a relationship with, with Young Cash, who I think is probably one of the greatest artists to ever come out of Jacksonville, Florida? I, I've always complimented him on, on his uh, songwriting ability, and I've, I stay on him all the time. Anytime I bring up his name, Cash, you need to rework some of those records that were on the uh, vacation mixtape that you put out before you went to prison because those are some hits. But um, what, is your, what is your relationship with him, and how, that, how did that come about? I met him through his brother. Vic, um, okay. I was living in Vic. Thank you. I was, I was just going to say, I can't remember his name. Like I'm going through the Rolodex in my head, trying to remember again, rest in peace. Um, Vic called me when I was living in Memphis and he said, we're starting a record label in Jacksonville and MOE. we want, yeah. yeah M O E. Thank you. And we want to hire you. Can we fly you down to meet with us and talk about you quarterbacking, you know, our projects? And I said, absolutely. Um, He had a partner. I can't remember his partner's name. It might have been Dave, but I loved his partner. Like Vic was cool, but his partner was just amazing. Mm -hmm. And um, I decided that I wanted very much to work with them. Well, the truth was they couldn't really afford 
afford me at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, they probably could have if they had uh, another third partner come in or if they had just waited like another six to nine months. But they couldn't really afford to do this properly, not just me, but the whole budget, because it really takes about a quarter million dollars right. to to successfully put out an artist to the point where either they're big enough to secure a deal or you start making money so that you don't even need a deal. It takes about a quarter. And they were they were a little bit shy. And so in order to um, keep a relationship, Vic had decided that um, while they were looking for another partner or raising more money, that he would pay me to do um, some little things for them just to keep the relationship. Mm-hmm. And he ended up um, hiring me to do something and then he didn't pay me, which, you know, is it's a really bad way to build a friendship with somebody, especially when you want them to help you more down the road. And um, I was really offended by that. And it kind of showed me like who he was. And um, his partner, Dave, reached out to me and tried to like, you know, tried to like um, make friends and young cash of course, who knew none of this was going on. I don't think I've even ever told him this story. Hmm. I've always just built relationships with artists because I'm an artist advocate. Like I really do this because I want artists to make money. If the artist gets wealthy, then the label will will make money. If the label has wealth, hopefully they'll pay the artist. So it's like a win-win for everybody. Right. And um, I built the relationship with cash from there. Okay. I ended up never helping their label. Um, I can't remember why. It might have been because I was so pissed off, mm-hmm. but it's probably more likely because I'm, I'm I'm kind of nice and I'm a little bit of a doormat. It it could be that they just couldn't really afford to do it properly. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I think Cash ended up signing to Universal. Steve Rifkin. Yeah, he signed to Universal yeah. SRC. That's that's honestly where I ended up meeting him because I was. You know, because like I told you, I was doing the stuff for for Universal as an intern, and I moved back from Tallahassee, Florida, to Jacksonville, and they said, "Okay, well, there's an artist that signed to SRC, uh, which is attached to Universal. You can either do that, or you can go down to Orlando and work with Granddaddy South, which was a whole other thing." But <laughs> but I, right. I was like, "Yo, I was like, um, I think I'll take Young Cash," and so I ended up uh, I ended up linking up with Young Cash. Probably the best decision I ever made. Great guy, love him to death. It, now, in 2011, you chose to write a book, The Knowledge to Succeed, How to Get a Record Deal. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to write that book and why you felt like it was necessary for the culture to have that? A- absolutely. Um, I, I actually planned, I had planned to write a whole series. And the series was called The Knowledge to Succeed. And my goal was to write a book about how to get a record deal, how to put out your own music, how to be a manager, um, how to be a, an entertainment attorney. Like it was going to be a whole series right. of how-to books cool. on the urban music industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I wrote this in 2011. The reason I started with how to get a record deal was because it's the number one question everybody asks me. Right. Even today, right. the number one question is how do I get a record deal? So I chose to be honest and write a book because you know the whole world thinks that you send in a demo to a label or you get a connection into a label or you get a cosign from an artist and that will give you a record deal. And while that may for one out of a million, (laughs) it's not 
it's not what you do to get a record deal. Mm -hmm. You have to build your fan base, you have to build leverage, and you have to prove to the labels that you're viable and that people are going to support you financially by buying your music, attending your shows, buying your merch. You know, it's a business after all. So I chose to write a book that explained that. And um, in writing that, what happened was a lot of people started calling me to come speak on panels about how to get a record deal. And I didn't want to become the voice of how to get a record deal. I wanted to be the voice, which I feel that I am, on how to stay independent. Mm -hmm. And um, while I never got time to write the rest of the books in the series, um, and it's very, it's very costly to write a book. You know, um, and and part of that is my fault because I was selling them for five dollars mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, selling them for like twenty nine ninety nine, like most books are. For me, the it was more important to get the information out there than it was to make money. Right. Well, the downside is, is that in life we all have bills, we all have, you know, a, a lifestyle to maintain and writing a book for me was not profitable. Right. I spent more money promoting it than I ever made in, you know, in book sales. Right. So if I've got an extra 10 hours in a day where I can be helping an artist put out music and getting paid lovely for it or writing a book where I'm going to lose money, it's not hard to figure out where I'm going to put my time. Right, 100%. <laughs> you know? I, I totally exactly. agree with you. Having written so, three books, I, I totally... So you get it, yeah, <laughs> yeah, so you get it. So I am writing How to Put Out Your Own Record because that that's where my heart is. And I've been writing that book for three years. Okay. And every time I get nearly done with it, something changes in the music industry and I have to go back in and change the book. Okay. It's, okay. it's, it's still a work in progress. Like I was going to put it out this past summer and then all of a sudden playlist became more important than blogs. So I had to go back in and rewrite the blog chapter, rewrite the, and it, it's like, it's like a never ending process of change. Eventually so, it'll, it'll all stabilize itself and hopefully we can well, get that he, one out. Exactly. Well, here's, here's what I decided to do. I decided to turn it instead of a book, I decided to turn it into a website called slaves no more. Mm -hmm. And it should be coming in the next couple of months. I'm still building it. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a website with a monthly subscription fee, like the price of a magazine, maybe three bucks, five bucks, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a place where people can come to learn how to put out their own music. And because it's a website, I can change it. So it's not like a book where I've written it, I put it out, and then six months later, it's got stuff in it that's not factual. Right. It's it's a place where it can be ever changing and you know constantly updated. Yeah. As the world, so as the world has been, right? Exactly. Now, exactly. obviously, I have to have to go back and I have to talk about this. His birthday is passed. The movie has been released. Um, in previous interviews, you've talked about your relationship with P Tupac. Uh, did you get a chance to watch the the biopic? And if so, what did you think? Um, I haven't watched it, and I have no intention of watching it. Mm -hmm. um, he was my friend, and I don't want to watch a movie of somebody else's adaptation of my friend. 
like I want to remember him as he was. I don't want to remember him as the press remembers him. Right. So I don't I don't read articles about him. I haven't seen any of the documentaries. I haven't watched this movie. I I just I want him to be who he was to me. Right. I don't want to see him, you know, through the eyes of, you know, whoever. Right. Now, I, that, that's so funny that you say that because Wendy literally like um you remember the you remember the bio that came out it came out in theaters probably like 10 years ago now uh, the Tupac biography um the movie that came out it was like 10 years ago or something like that I was still I, I, I don't remember and I'm I'm sure I didn't go see it Right I know <laughs> I, I know remember. I figure I figure as much based on your first response but for somebody like me I never got to have that kind of personal relationship with him that obviously you got to have but I, he was so influential to my life. I mean, I remember being 11, 12 years old, my mother telling me, no, you can't listen to this guy, Tupac. He just got arrested for this thing or that thing or whatnot. And I'm literally having to find a blank tape out of my sister's room because she's 18, find a blank tape, record his songs off the radio, and then <laughs> hide it up under my bed and then listen to it when my mom goes to bed at night. Um, I, I own one of his biographies. I own his book of poetry. Um, you know, I cried at the end of that biopic that came out 10 years ago like that. So you got to have a personal relationship with him. What was he like as a as a person and, and how did he impact your life? Um, he was funny. Mm -hmm. He was very, very, very funny. Um, he had a great sense of humor. He made me laugh. I made him laugh. Um, he impacted my life in a way that I didn't really expect. Like I grew up in a family where you don't brag, you don't name drop, you don't tell somebody how much you paid for something. You don't ask them how much money they make a year. Like you don't ever put people on the spot mm. and make them uncomfortable in any way. And you certainly don't use one person's name to get something from another person. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in this, you know, very 1950s type of mentality. And when I started Rap Coalition, I would never go to one rapper and say, oh, so-and-so likes me, so you should too. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And when... I befriended Pac and he saw what I was doing is very supportive of rap coalition. He said, you need a board of advisors. And I said, why? And he said, cause you're a white woman in a black male music form. And unless you have somebody like me to stand next to you and say, I support you it's going to be harder to get people like on your side and to know who you are and to understand you mm -hmm. and to support you. And I said, uh, okay, I don't really like that, but I could see where, you know, you definitely understand this market more than I do. So I'm going to do that. So he was my first board of advisor. Um, Vinny from naughty by, uh, no, excuse me, Chuck D was the second one. And Vinny from naughty by nature was my third. So I started building a board of people that were well respected in the music industry and they were at they were at the height of their career when I started Rap Coalition. So it would be like today me having a board with Drake, Weekend and one of the Migos. Wow. <laughs> like to put it in, into perspective, right? And what it did was it gave me instant legitimacy 
in a world where people were still looking at me funny, like, uh, who's that white girl? I don't quite understand what she does, but I'm guessing she's raping artists. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it gave me a cosign and a legitimacy that helped me to move around with bigger artists that needed more help. And not from a fame perspective, because I've never been a dick rider, mm-hmm. but from a perspective where I could be more helpful to somebody that had a bigger platform. And that was always important to me. Like even today when, when I'm drawing up um, business plans or marketing plans for my client, there's always a not-for-profit component. Either the artist is speaking at boys and girls clubs mm-hmm. or they're feeding the homeless or they're starting a foundation. I just believe that when you have a platform, you need to also use it for good mm-hmm. and to help people. Right. And if – if I'm able to get next to Kanye and say, wow, did I just pronounce it Kanye <laughs> next to Kanye? And <laughs> that was crazy. Um, if I get next to Kanye and I say, you know what? Um, we need to solve the violence problem in Chicago, for example. And I have not done this. I'm just using this as an example. Right. right. You know, um, it's going to have more impact than if I'm working with an up and coming artist that doesn't have a platform and doesn't have a fan base yet. And I say, OK, we're going to do something to stop the violence. Right. So Pac impacted me by putting me into an arena that I would have never gotten to on my own. There's also another piece of advice that he gave me that I did not follow Um it used to drive him crazy that I would do shit for free. Um, and everything with Rap Coalition, because it's a not-for-profit, is for free. And his attitude was, no, not free. Like, once they, once you help them and they go on to be successful, then they need to turn around and help the next person coming up behind them. And I refused to do that because I really thought that they would it never crossed my mind that somebody who's like in the worst possible situation in their life would receive help and then go off and do other shit and never look back. And he was right. Every artist has done that. Like no one gives back. No one turns around and says, okay, you know what, Wendy, you helped me when I had nothing. Tell me one guy, you know, now that I'm a millionaire, tell me one guy that needs my help and I'll pay his legal fees. Not one person has done that. So he was absolutely right. It's something that I did not um, apply to my company. I still have not applied it to my company because I still think people should do right because it's the right thing to do, not because they're forced or there's a gun to their head. Mm -hmm. Um, but that is that is another impact that he had on me because he absolutely knows this community far better than I do. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, I, I do have to ask you, uh, you know, I, I think folks from Jacksonville would be upset if I didn't ask you that that we have several up and coming artists uh, from our market. We have a young trap who was recently signed to Def Jam. We have Tokyo Pets who is doing stuff with T.I. Now we have uh, Belize, also known as Traffic who's working with bigger rankings. I'm not sure if you're familiar with any of these artists, but 
in the process of, I guess, transitioning from kind of a local artist moving to that next level, what, what kind of what kind of advice would you give an artist uh, that's kind of in the position of maybe some of those folks like just recently getting signed or recently building a relationship with a known artist and going on tour? What's some of the advice that you would give them? Um, definitely build your fan base in in 2017 whether you're signed or not the most important thing you can do for your career is to build your fan base and always make sure that whatever you're doing you're including them you're getting feedback from them you know i was just on a panel last week and one of the points that i made was when i started in the music industry everything was based on emotion it was based on whether we liked it as the movers and the shakers and the tastemakers mm -hmm. or whether we didn't. And today it's not based on that. It's based on data. It's based on numbers. So there is no question as to, you know, who's more popular, um, little Yachty or J Cole, you know, J Cole always streams more, sells more tours, more sells more t-shirts, it's no longer based on, oh, I think people will like this. It's based on this is what people like. So this is what we're going to put money behind. Right. And the way that you make sure that your data is accurate is you listen to your fan base. So if you're making songs that are more upbeat and danceable, and then you also make grimy in the trap type songs and your fans are telling you that they like the upbeat songs better mm -hmm. then you need to make more upbeat songs. If they, if they're telling you they like the trap songs better, then you need to make trap songs. If they like them all, then you need to keep making them all. But we live in an era now where our success can be measured and dictated so we know what path to take. And we never had that before. It's such a gift, you know, for artists. And, and I, I realized that that sucks for somebody who makes music based on what's in their heart. Mm -hmm. And that's cool. If you're that kind of artist where you're not making music because you want to sell it, but because you want to get it out, then just make money other ways, like flip houses and give away your music for free. Right. But if you're doing this because you're trying to have a career and you're trying to build an empire and a legacy, you're going to have to really pay attention to the data and give people what they're willing to pay for. Right. It's a business. Do you feel like that in the in this current uh, climate that, that conferences and record pools still resonate or, or do they need to diversify their format? Because obviously we know in the in the mid 2000s, you know, Record pools and those music conferences like TJ's, DJ's, things like that um, really, really had a real impact on the culture. And it, it doesn't seem to really be the same way anymore. Do you think that there's it's still not, room for that? Um, I think there is room for that. I think the, the, the problem is that when TJ's, DJ's was popping, there were very few ways for us to get our information. So when TJ, re, you know, sent out his newsletter and, um, you know, put it on a couple of blogs that it was happening, we all knew to go. Mm -hmm. Today, there's I think my blog list is over 300. Mm -hmm. So the market is splintered, you know, to reach artists. 
I can't just advertise on one platform. I have to hit them on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. It becomes really costly for me to inform the public. And most, most events like um, TJ's DJs or Revolt or A3C or um, the Ozone Awards, like the things that, that we attend, it becomes really expensive to go to them. Right. So where you could go to TJ's DJs and spend 25 bucks to get in, Today, if you want to go to Revolt, you're spending close to a thousand bucks, and most artists don't have a thousand dollars to spend to go to a music conference to learn something, and I think that's the biggest problem, and that's also one of the one of the um, reasons that I took into account when I decided to set up an online um, educational program was. I don't want it to be super expensive. I don't want somebody to have to pay hundreds of dollars to get into a conference. Mm-hmm. You know, in in rock and country, they still do conferences. They have sponsors. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it's easier for them. I went to a conference last month called Music Biz. It was in Nashville. And they had people there from Spotify, almost the entire you know, almost the entire, um, I shouldn't say the entire staff. Cause there's like, there's like thousands of people that work for Spotify, right. but the people that matter for Spotify, the ones that interact with labels and artists, they were all there. There were like 20 people there from Spotify. Apple was there. Google was there. Amazon was there. And as I, as I sat there in the panels, listening to them speak, I'm like, man, I could never get these people to come and support rap, even though rap makes more money streaming than any other genre. There's still that mental stigma of it's rap. Right. Whereas somehow, somehow corporations think that rock is safer, smarter, you know, better organized. And it's, and it's very frustrating because how do we get Apple to come speak to a room full of rappers, right. you know, and then how do we pay for it? Like, how do we, how do we fund that? Yeah. It's a, it's, it seems to be a bit of an ongoing question that I'm sure that the influencers like yourself will inevitably come to a conclusion on, um, but I'm excited to see where, where all of that ends up going. I got to ask you, uh, I want to throw a couple of names at you and I want you to give me sure. what, what comes to mind. Okay. Sure. TJ Chapman. I love TJ. Um, TJ is somebody that um, I spent much time with. Any question that he needed answered, I would answer. I made myself available for him. Mm -hmm. And he has done an awesome job building a career in the music business. He's just somebody that I really adore. I think he's great at what he does. And um, I can't say enough good about him. I think TJ is amazing. Somebody I know that, that that you've had a great relationship over the years, David Banner. Um, I love Banner. Um, Banner's somebody that lived in my house with me for, um, I think he was there for six months, sleeping on my sofa when he was coming up. And his work ethic and his love of hip-hop is just amazing. I did his deal for him at SRC. It was a hard deal to do only because I was so close to him. Um 
I managed him for a while. I, I think he's just a really great human being that cares about people. He cares about black people. Mm-hmm. And I think that he's a blessing for the world. It's so funny. My, my first interaction with him was in TJ's office. I come up the stairs to that, that old rickety office in, um, that used to be, I guess, the record store in Tallahassee. So I come up the stairs and uh, TJ, who very rarely talked to me, we, we, we don't have the best relationship. Uh, my relationship is more with Keith, but TJ tells me to come into the office. And um, so I walk into his office and um, as soon as I step through the door, the door slams closed and it's David Banner. And he just yells, ah! I mean, he scared me. <laughs> it was the most random and absurd thing I had ever experienced in my life. But you can imagine being like 22 years old, 21, 22 years old and something like that happening to you. Like, But that's my first interaction with him. He's always had so much energy and, and I've respected his mind for over a decade now, as long as I've ditto, yeah, as long as I've known him, ditto. He's done some very unpopular things in the name of doing what's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the best example I can give you is with Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. His album was about to drop, and he stopped in the middle of his promo tour when Katrina hit, and used his tour bus to run water. Um, into New Orleans and into uh, Mississippi, mostly Mississippi, which is where he's from. But I remember his label tripping on him for doing that. And he's like, I don't give a fuck. Like, like pull my deal. I don't care, but this needs to be done. Right. Great human being. And then great, great, great human being. Last one I have to ask you about and had to, had to bring him last because he's from where I'm from. Bigger ranking. Billy, I love Bigger Rankin. Um, and I said this in the beginning when you mentioned his name, like he his his love of the truth and sharing genuine knowledge is just amazing. And and let me preface that by saying, like many times I've sat on panels with A and R guys, and I have heard them say to the crowd, "Just send in your demo. I listen to everything." Send in your demo and we'll get back to you. And I know it's bullshit and they know it's bullshit. Mm-hmm. And the great thing about about Billy is he will t- um bigger rank and is he will tell you the truth. He will not sugarcoat it. He will be honest. And if somebody near him says something that's not accurate, he will call them out on it. It's <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> that's what's up. Now, I got to obviously before I let you go, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing now, projects that you have in the works, things like that, and how folks can get in contact with you if they want to get get in contact with you? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Um, I think the the thing that I'm most proud about is um, there's an artist here in Atlanta called Trouble. He's part of Duct Tape. And uh, three years ago, one of my clients out of Chicago lost his artist. Um, nothing sad, but he lost his artist. His artist, you know, um, had a different vision for what his career should be. Mm-hmm. And he came to me and said, you know, I really want to still start this label and I still want to work with you, Wendy. Can you find me another artist? And I brought him Trouble from Duct Tape. And he loved Trouble on site. Trouble was so excited to, you know, get his career back on track. He had been out of the industry for about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And when he was in the industry, he, you know, they, they never worked his projects properly. So he never really got to feel success. Right. And um, 
I worked with him. I brought my husband, Tony, in to work with him. And we built him up, you know, to to this level where, you know, he was making a lot of money doing what he loves to do. And Interscope just signed him to a deal. And I don't I don't want to embarrass him by by talking about the money, but it was an amazing, amazing amount of money. I'm very excited for him. That's what's up. And, and how can people get in contact with you if they need to get in contact with you looking for uh, access to your services, want to do business, things like that? How can they get in contact with you? Um, the best way is to reach me through email. This is wendyday at gmail.com. Um, I get too many calls on my phone, so I tend to not answer it very much. Mm-hmm. But I answer every email that I get. Every email that comes in gets a response. That is 100% this is the truth. Wendy Day. <laughs> <laughs> I love you for that. This is wendyday at gmail.com. Uh, and just for the record, that like I said, that is 100% the truth because, Wendy, I'm going to be completely honest with you. Never in a million years did I think that this interview was going to happen because I, I literally shoot out. And it's so crazy because I shoot out uh, emails to people who I think, you know, you know, no disrespect to anybody else, but they don't have the kind of legacy and, and you know, the resume that you have. But I'll shoot out a, 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 a interview request to, to certain folks, never get a response. And I'm like kind of feel like I'm a little bit more influential than you for you not to be responding to me. But, right. But. Right. It's a nature. It's the nature of this business. Like this business is, it's just all bullshit. Mm-hmm. And, and it's funny because if you worked for like double XL mm-hmm. or you worked for rap radar and you said, Wendy, would you do an interview? I would politely pass because I just, it, it for me, it's not about me, mm-hmm. but the reason that I chose to do this is because I know you don't make money doing this. <laughs> I know you don't. You don't even have to tell me. It's a labor of love, and you're doing it because you really want people in the music business to understand what it takes to win. Mm-hmm. And I support what you do. I love what you do. And I'm happy to speak to you as much as you want or as little as you want. (laughs) I just think that anybody that does shit when there's no money attached should get special love. It's so crazy because and you're you're 100 percent right about that, that like if you have something attached to your name, it's amazing how quickly people respond Uh, to that end. And before we wrap up, I'll tell you a little story. When I was uh, when I was an intern for Universal, obviously you and I being in the industry, we know that that is just kind of like. You know, you're basically a glorified slave. And so, I mean, it's not not something that 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 comes with a lot of money or prestige or anything like that. But but you have a title behind your name. I work for Universal. And it was so funny because I came back home to Jacksonville, literally, you know, I mean, I was a club promoter. I had done well. I had invested in some stuff. You know, a couple of people had done some shows with T-Pain early on. Like I was telling you, I was in Tallahassee when I'm sprung first popped off and, you know, I took a little bit of refund check money and, and, you know, tossed my money into the pot to get something back and stuff like that. But, you know, I really had nothing when I came back to Jacksonville except for, you know, a few thousand dollars. 
And so I come back and, um, you know, I, I blow up everybody's phones trying to get in contact with folks and nobody's responding. I call Bigger Rankings and I say, hey, this is Brandon Jacobs from Universal SRC. Um, I know that there's a record pool meeting, upstart record pool meeting. I was just trying to figure out how I could uh, how I could get in there. Next thing I know, I immediately get a text back. You know, you need to get with Bodie. Here's his number. Give him a call. And then Bodie yep. goes, hey, man, as soon as I as soon as I get to the uh, record pool, it was in Jacksonville, downtown at Cartouche. And Bodie comes in, and Bodie takes me up up to the front of the stage. And he goes, "All right, now nah, niggas, y'all need to y'all need to make sure y'all talk to this little nigga right here, man. Make sure everybody sign his sheet because he worked for Universal. He gonna get y'all the deal." And it is a mate like there was a line forming in front of me. Yep, and it's that's yep. just how it it's is. Crazy, right? <laughs> it's very much a what can you do for me industry. And and here's what's even crazier to me, like. You and, and 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 you know I'm I'm hugely thankful for, that you're authentic and legitimate because there's a lot of guys out here who say I work for Atlantic Records and they don't I work for Universal and they don't so they're getting that same line forming in front of them and they're full of shit mm-hmm. they don't work for Universal they don't work for Atlantic <laughs> but these artists are li- like lining up and then all of a sudden there's a scam coming mm-hmm. you know there's there's oh if you spend this amount of money, I can get you a Timberland track. Or if you spend that, <laughs> I can get you whatever. And then artists call me saying, oh, I got jerked. I don't know how it happened. No. The, the most money I ever made, uh, I've, I've always tell, tell everybody, I'm proud of what I did in the industry. It was very regional. New Blood Entertainment, Watts LLC it was very regional. A lot of what we did, uh, we worked with Benazwar. We worked with Tay Dism, you know, doing things like that. Nice. And I'm, I'm proud of what we did. Most money that we ever made was on street team promotions, doing stuff for clubs. Um, I don't know if you remember when uh, Paris Hilton had, um, she had branded her name onto a bunch of clubs. And so they were naming all these clubs, Club Paris, all across the world. And uh, Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, she, okay. um, she, they had one in Jacksonville. And, uh, you know, there was a guy named Jamie Simon. Unfortunately, he did not understand the business very well. And uh, he paid uh, about $6,000 a week for street team promotion. So. <laughs> wow. Nice. Nice. I wasn't finna, I wasn't finna argue him down. I was like, okay, well. Exactly. We'll take that. We'll, we'll suffer through that. We'll try to make things meet on that. With that little bit That's of money. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Hell of money. You know, I'm for glad it. you, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that's something that people in the music industry need to understand. Like I was in the, in the industry for six years before I made a dime. Mm-hmm. I mean, a dime of music money. I was doing I was doing stuff on the side and I was living off of my savings. But, you know, it it was still six years before I made money. And then it was 10 years before I could kind of support myself. Right. So it's not an industry where you come in and you start making millions up front. Like you've really got to love this because you're really not going to make money. (laughs) hundred percent. Well, Wendy, I want to thank you again. This has meant so much to me. I definitely will. Well, you know, since you said as much as I want or as little, I I definitely will be reaching out to you in the future to just go over some other things. Beautiful. If you have any other projects, I definitely want to know about them so that that way I can kind of put them out on my platform. And I just, again, just want to reiterate how much I respect you and I'm, I admire you for, for your contributions to this culture because a lot Thank of people so don't, don't, don't recognize you for all that you do. Um, they don't, and that's okay because that's not why I do what I do. Like, I didn't get into it for accolades, um, but thank you for saying that. Like, it means a lot that you said that, but it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't stop me when people don't think that. 
Definitely, definitely. Now, if you guys are trying to get in contact with me, you can hit me up on the email, est1984podcast at gmail.com. You can also hit me up on my personal Snapchat, bkjest1984, just so that you guys know there's going to be some established 1984 uh, paraphernalia coming out, man. I'm working on that right now, so I'll be getting that out. You can hit me up on the Instagram, est1984podcast, or you can hit me up on the personal email or the personal Instagram, at Brandon Kobe Jacobs. My name is Brandon Kobe Jacobs. You've been listening to Windy Day and you've been listening to the Established 1984 podcast. Take care. Thank you so much.